Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. This is David Rothkopf, and I am coming to you from... Well, I'll disclose the location. I'm in Shenzhen, China. Um, and uh, joining me uh, are Ed Luce, who has recently returned from a trip to the Middle East of the Financial Times, and Sam Vinograd, who is the national security analyst for CNN, and Rosa Brooks, who is somewhere out shopping for silos or heavily heavily fortified bunkers in the Washington, D.C. area. How was, how was Israel, Ed? Uh, it was, it was uh, quite surreal because it was the week, um, you know, the, the build-up to the airstrikes on Syria. And uh, Israel, as you remember, at the beginning of the week had struck a Hezbollah um, target inside Syria with some Iranian operatives there. It, it hadn't um, built up to it. It hadn't talked about it. It didn't take responsibility for it, and nobody applauded it. It was just a sort of business as usual, which was the mirror image of these kabuki airstrikes that the West sort of uh, feverishly built up to. Um, uh, and then, you know, pinpricked Assad with no results whatsoever, applauded itself very loudly and took credit immediately um, for something that changed nothing. So for me, it was just a very instructive place, Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, from which to observe these very contrasting attitudes to what military operations are supposed to be about. And Dave, what was the lesson that you took away from this instructive moment? Was it that you too should feel free to bomb with impunity? Well, no, but, um, you know, asking Israelis of various political stripes um, what they expected from the Western airstrikes, I got in advance a precise and accurate take on what actually did happen, which was these these were kabuki airstrikes meant to show the West cared, uh, apparently only about victims of sarin and nerve agent um, attacks and no other victims of Assad. So I think Israeli cynicism was fairly well judged. I have to say, by the way, that I've received a number of critiques on the, on the, on the Twitters um, from people who object to the use of the term kabuki, um, who My suggest... Dad. Well, they just feel like we don't understand kabuki theater and the nuances of kabuki theater. Um, <laughs> That's probably not fair. Not <laughs> that I, as a former theater director, actually do understand the nuances of kabuki Ooh. theater and the origin of the term, um, which which derives from a word meaning essentially uh, fake. Uh, so the, the 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 use of the term is not as bad as as one might seen, um, or at least loosely translated that way. 
Um, but Sam, you know, it strikes me that there's a sort of broader context for this, uh, uh, or these kinds of attacks and and the claims of, for credit of them, uh, uh, that is associated with the conundrum in which the commander in chief finds himself, and that if we look out over the month ahead, we see you know him going to the Middle East, following as all people want to do in Ed's footsteps. Um, to to oversee the opening of an embassy in Jerusalem, um, and and then also going off to some summit with Kim Jong Un um, to fulfill what one article that I saw uh, suggested Trump thought was his historical destiny, his great role. Um, but it all seems to be a little kabuki esque, you know. It all seems to be like. Let me do something to distract from what's theater. going on. So, I mean, what do you think? What do you What do you think of all this? Is something really possibly going to come out of it, other than photo ops? I think that on the North Korea side, we might see something. We're We're starting to see. I'm going to stress the starting. The process catch up with the president. We had this ridiculous announcement back in in March where the president, I think, was so enamored by this idea that Kim Jong-un, who, by the way, is a brutal dictator, actually wanted to meet with him, that he got in front of his team and announced that he was going to meet, set this kind of arbitrary May deadline, um, and threw the process under the bus because he didn't give his team a chance to really analyze what we wanted out of this meeting and how long it would take to prepare. To prepare. I think he started to walk that back. There was this press conference last night with the prime minister of Japan, Prime Minister Abe, where the president actually gave some mildly reassuring talking points. He said that he wouldn't meet with Kim unless the meeting was going to be fruitful. And if the meeting went off the rails, he would walk out and that sort of thing. He sent Mike Pompeo to meet with Kim Jong-un, which I actually view as a good thing because Mike Pompeo can kind of figure out where Kim is coming at this from and try to get a sense of whether Kim's serious. So I think the question on North Korea is whether the president will be disciplined enough, and I know where my gut is on that, to wait for the meeting to happen until it's adequately prepared versus just wanting to rush into something to say, look what I can do. So it's really a question of whether Bolton, Pompeo, and others can keep him disciplined on that. In between now and then, I think we all know there's going to be a lot of photo ops and a lot of kind of ribbon cutting, both in Jerusalem and elsewhere. Because the president does want to distract whenever something goes wrong. Look back over the last couple of weeks. Whenever something goes wrong with the White House, there's some kind of leak about personnel or there's some kind of strike on Syria. And I, I don't want to get too conspiracy minded here. <laughs> but their their crisis calm strategy is to distract. So I guarantee and, and now, that. And now the consensus is that the comms director at the White House is none other than the president himself. Who has who has essentially been the comms director since January 2017? So I don't I don't know that they need to hire any more replacements. So Rosa, knowing you as I do, I suspect that right in front of you someplace are some chicken entrails. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't do chicken entrails. I do tea leaves. They're oh, much tea more leaves. hygienic. Yeah, no, that is more yeah, hygienic. It's in really China, I see. I chick <laughs> see chicken entrails almost every place these days. But 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 but. Okay, so look. Plus, I have the plus. I have the sarcastic eight ball. Oh, that's, yeah, the snarky eight ball. Um, something else we have to manufacture and sell to our many nerds. But um, uh, <laughs> let me let me ask you a question. Um, do you see the same thing that Sam sees? Uh, 
Oh, yeah. No, I, I, I think that that's absolutely right. I think that the key or one of the keys to the psychology of Donald Trump, and, and we're all becoming armchair psychologists in this administration, is that he he has a desperate need to be told that he's doing well. You know, he's got a desperate need for praise, a desperate need to be able to boast. Uh, I mean, my in my deep knowledge of psychology, I, I would say that that suggests that deep down he has very low self-esteem. Um, but but so whenever he's being attacked, it, it, it's not just distraction, although I think that's part of it, um, that his little fits of temper often involve the terrible unfairness of somebody saying something mean to him when in fact he is amazing. Um, and and so, you know, so he either lashes out at those who are making him feel bad to remind everybody that, in fact, he's a sane and stable genius and so on and so forth with the biggest crowds at the biggest inauguration and the biggest button and <laughs> biggest everything. Toughest um, in the room. Yeah. Wow. You know, or or he 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 wants he wants good news. And, and I think that that's sort of the most hopeful thing. Right. Is that maybe just maybe his desire for genuine achievement will overcome his desire to just lash out and punish everybody who doesn't respect him the way he should be respected. Um, so it's not completely inconceivable that that need for achievement and to be praised will will occasionally uh, nudge him in the right direction. So I, I think we, you know, that that's the hope. The, the downside of this trait is, is that we just bomb people to distract others. The upside to this trait could be that he clearly does want to walk away with a win on 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 Korea, for instance. And it's not at all clear that the North Korean actual policy position, notwithstanding their rhetoric, will enable um, a win. Um, you know, it could be that when when we've discussed this before, that when they say denuclearization, they mean something uh, that will turn out to be completely unacceptable to the U.S., like all U.S. troops out of South Korea. Um, but, but, but who knows, um, you know, he, I, I think he, I think he genuinely would like to bring home a win. And we see that, you know, on Twitter, his own, his own followers are all sort of saying things like, see, you know, it took, it took other presidents years and they could never get this agreement between the Koreas or denuclearization and Trump did it in five minutes, you know, and he wants that to be the narrative. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, you know, an interesting take, um, I just want to give Ed a chance to weigh in before I tell you exactly what will happen. Go, go ahead, Ed. Oh, wait, wait, you're making us wait after you said that? Gosh. Yeah, I, I'm also on the edge of my seat. You want me to weigh in on whether Trump's going to put out a, a win from a Kim Jong-un summit? Yes. Um, no, I don't think he is. Um, and, my, and my fear is when he doesn't, you know, there's a thin line between love and hate. He'll go from, you know, being on the cusp of this historic victory no one else could pull off uh, by ending the war that he's just found about, found out about um, the U.S. is still in um, with North Korea um, to, to, to a Bolton-esque position, um, which, uh, which will make the situation very dangerous. My, my fear is it's going to fail dangerously. Okay, well... Let me tell you what my theory is, and then you guys can react to it. I totally disagree with Ed. I kind of disagree a little bit. I kind of agree with where where Rosa and Sam are at. I think what's going to happen is that Trump is in such desperate need for victory that he is just going to do one thing after another to create the appearance of victory. 
just like launching a bunch of missiles without it really having any long-term plan. But he can say, see, I did a strong thing. And opening up this embassy, see, I'm good for all you folks who like Israel and embassies. And I think what he's going to do is he's going to go off and he's going to have a meeting with the North Koreans. And um, he's going to find a way to declare the meeting successful. Now, the one way is going to be that North Korea and South Korea will finally end their 70-year-old war with one another, which, of course, ended a long time ago, but they'll sign it on paper. And Trump will take credit for that. And that'll be the closest thing to a near-term achievement. And then they will agree on the principle of denuclearization and begin talks, talks which will last long after Trump is gone. But Trump will then say, you see, I've made progress that no one else was able to make before. The North and South are closer to each other, and we are working towards denuclearization. And and he's going to declare victory, even though it, there's no way that Kim Jong-un gives up his nuclear weapons. It would be foolish for him to give up his nuclear weapons. And I don't think he would give them up unless the U.S. would leave South Korea, which, by the way, I think Trump might actually be more open to than the rest of us would be. So, Sam, critique <laughs> my, my chicken entrails, which, by the way, are only the finest Chinese chicken entrails. Organic. Orga yeah. The real question here is, what do we give up in that scenario? Do we lift pressure on North Korea? Let's say, let's say Donald Trump goes, wants to score a win, sits down with Kim when we do launch into some lengthy negotiations— do we lift pressure in that scenario? If not, if that kind of negotiation leads to a period of de-escalation on the peninsula, I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing. So the thing I'm going to have my eye on is if we have to do anything in terms of lifting, lifting pressure under that scenario. That's that's a, the key point for me. The other kind of wild card here, and I'm stressing the wild part, is John Bolton. Uh, and whether he agrees to let the president go into a meeting in that scenario. He's a hawk. We know that. So we don't know if the president's going to listen to him. The press conference last night, again, was better. The president said that he wouldn't just enter into a meeting for the sake of a meeting. Will the president keep listening to wild John Bolton? That's an unknowable question, too. But those are the two things, David, that are the unknowns that I think would influence the scenario that you just laid out. But let me throw in an even wilder wild card, Ooh. right? Um, Unlikely, but not completely impossible, given Trump's fondness for Vladimir Putin, for, for Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines, et cetera, is Trump goes into this, he bonds with Kim Jong-un in a really scary way, uh, realizes that he himself wow. uh, approves wholeheartedly of Kim Jong-un's approach to running a country, uh, and comes out saying, I don't blame North Korea at all for wanting to keep their nukes. They should keep their nukes. Everybody's out to get them, when all they have done is repress their citizens for decades, uh, which is completely understandable, and it's everything, you know, something every leader wants to do, such as myself. So, so, so that, you know, I don't think it's completely impossible that he comes out of this deciding that, that uh, Kim Jong-un is his new best friend. By the way, folks, you know, many of you are sitting there saying, where's Corey? And we're trying to work out the time zones with this trip. And Corey wanted to join. She couldn't. So she'll be with us next week. But I know that Corey would chime in there again with her traditional comment about, you know, unwanted imagery of Trump and, and Kim Jong-un bonding in a really... Add Putin uh, in there and you have quite a threesome, don't you? Oh, yeah. yeah. 
That's really but, 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 you know, it, it is not, I mean, we have seen with Putin, uh, and, mm-hmm. and there may yet be reasons that will come out later, uh, or evidence of reasons that will come out later. Um, but we have seen Trump being extremely unwilling to condemn Putin, notwithstanding uh, members of his own administration very, very strongly urging him to do so. Um, but so the, way past that. Yeah. His UN ambassador announced they were doing so and right. Trump blew up. Just, right. And, Absolutely. and said, quick, quick, call the Russians. Tell them we're not doing it. Sorry. No, Sorry, so, Vlad. Call so, them so up. So it doesn't strike me as quite as bizarre as, as one might otherwise think with any other administration in the world uh, to imagine that somehow Trump comes out of this saying, uh, oh, and now I understand those poor North Koreans, they've just been picked on for years and darn it, I've had enough, and he's my yeah. friend. And that's what he did last night, actually. If you read the transcript from the press conference last night, he spent more time criticizing past administration's policies on North Korea than he did criticizing Kim Jong-un, which is remarkable, right? I mean, this guy has nuclear weapons, illegal ballistic missiles programs, chemical weapons, launches cyber attacks, stars his own people, and the president gave more airtime to criticizing American administrations than to that guy. It's, well, because, it's because but, you know, he's competing with other American that. administrations. You know, right. he, he wants to differentiate himself and he does not like being told what to do. You know, that's but, pretty clear. The more people who tell him, oh, the North Koreans, they're no good. You have to condemn them. The more he says, well, no, I want to condemn somebody else. Yeah, but let me let me let me paint this scenario slightly differently. And Ed, maybe you can respond to it here, because I see Trump looks at Kim Jong-un, and this may be related to what you were saying, Rosa, but what he sees is Stormy Daniels. I mean, he looks and he says, hmm, this is something that I really want right now, because Kim Jong-un is the only person on the planet Earth right now who can give Trump a big enough bump that he might actually be able to, you know, sort of rise up to the level of presidential. And to Trump, that's as attractive as, you know, a porn star used to be. What do you say, Ed? I'm speechless. (laughs) Kim Kim Jong-un is Stormy Daniels. I mean, I can, uh, you know, Kim Jong-un. Now, that's an unwanted visual. We can call him Stormy Jong-un. (laughs) big rocket man big rocket man yeah. with, big, with big hands um yeah look i mean trump trump is is desperate for a win that's that's why you know the the capital in jerusalem uh, the, the embassy is being moved to jerusalem he that's why he's he thinks he can get a two-state deal uh where no other president has i mean that is his motive um, so, you know, I share I, I share your view, although you think we, we disagree strongly. I share your view that Trump is vulnerable to agreeing to a deal that's um, that's going to be contrary to America's national interests, but won't be as bad as it seems, um, per Sam's comment. Uh, but I, I just think, you know, I mean. We've got six weeks or so until this meeting is supposed to happen. Uh, we're now hearing early June. Pompeo, you know, has spoken to his counterparts there. Pompeo might not get confirmed. His his confirmation process is 
touch and go. I mean, he, he needs in the main Senate vote, if it gets through committee, he needs at least one Democrat. Um, and he probably hasn't got Rand Paul. John McCain's sick, so he's not going to be voting. There, there are a, a ton of things that could happen before this summit, um, this supposed summit takes place. And I'm skeptical as to whether it will. Well, that's, I mean, that's also an interesting possibility. Sam, because our listeners are wonkier than your usual CNN. <laughs> um, uh, let me, let me as tell As well me, as more attractive. Well, yes, much more attractive than those CNN listeners. But, but, but let, me, let me just take a little sort of side detour there, because we've mentioned the press conference that the president had at Mar-a-Lago uh, after playing golf with uh, 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 Abe. Um, and, and let's look at it from the, the perspective of um, a different leader who's immersed in scandal and may not make it through the year, and that's Abe, who, who went to Mar-a-Lago looking for something. <laughs> looking besides, for a win, yeah. <laughs> besides golf, and he got nothing. He got nothing. I know. On, I know. Trade, on trade, he got nothing. He Even, got a nice fact, In fact, while the president was, while he was there, the president decided to reverse his reversal on TPP, which is essentially, you know, a bilateral trade deal with Japan with some other smaller markets thrown in. And, and so, Abe, who desperately needed a win, just in the way that Trump desperately needs a win, has headed home empty-handed, right? He has. I mean, he is under real pressure. Think about when he met with Trump last November, to be totally wonky. His party had just won a landslide election. He was rolling into Mar-a-Lago, kind of feeling, feeling great with a huge domestic backing. He went into this meeting really wanting to be perfectly aligned with President Trump. And I think to walk away with the promise that Japan would get an exemption from the steel and aluminum tariffs that the administration rolled out a few weeks ago, every other major U.S. ally got an exemption. Japan exports a relatively sizable amount of steel to the United States. And my gut is that's what he was hoping he could go back home with. He's going home with absolutely nothing. The only thing he might be able to hang his hat on is the president's stance on North Korea. The, again, the president was a little bit more balanced last night on what it would take for him to sit down with Kim Jong-un. So my gut is that Abe will try to lift up the president's rhetoric on North Korea because this was such a massive failure on trade. Um, yeah. That's, uh, and uh, Abe is, that also is that wonky enough? No, that's pretty wonky. You know, our uh, our uh, well, certainly I don't know if all of you are, are friends with her, but certainly Ed and I are friends with the Washington Post correspondent there, Anna Fifield. And one of the things that the who should be on this show sometime. And one of the things that the great Anna Fifield has been writing about is that Japan's having its own Me Too moment, um, and that a couple of Japanese politicians have had to resign because of. Um, uh, uh, cases of, of, of sort of sexual harassment. Um, so that on top of all of this, uh, Abe is, a, you know, sharing, sharing even more of the experiences of, of, of the Trump administration. But Rosa, it raises yet another issue because Abe got a lot of props back in the day that Sam was referring to for coming in and handling Trump well. In fact, Abe met with Trump before he became president and he kissed his ass then and he kissed his ass again, and he flattered him. And, and there was a lot of talk that Abe really gets how to schmooze Trump. 
and 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 other world leaders were like, okay, well, um, I'll pucker up. Where do I kiss? You know, because this will work with this guy Trump. But I think Abe has learned another lesson, which is no one can handle Donald Trump, and and he has no loyalty. It, yeah, it, the, the, the 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 Roy Cohn quote to me sort of epitomizes Trump when he's dying uh, of HIV/AIDS. This loyal mafia mobster lawyer um, is shunned by Trump. He doesn't even visit him on his deathbed, and and Cohn says. That guy pisses ice. I mean, Trump is loyal to nobody. Um, so Abe, you know, can give him a, a million sets of golden golf clubs and, you know, help advertise Trump's golf properties. It's not going to mean anything. And the Japanese are discovering this. Or at least it won't mean anything long term, right? I mean, in, in at any given moment, kissing up to Trump may get you what you want if it's a moment that Trump is, is looking for a win and you can give that win and you're kissing up to him helps him get that win. But but it's certainly not going to build up any capital that you can draw on later. And indeed, that's what we've I mean, I, I, needless to say, we've seen that across the board that, that that all U.S. allies who mistakenly thought that they'd built up some you know, they, goodwill from, from the U.S. found out. Nope. They're, they're now suffering from momentary confusion. Correct. <laughs> Well, it's it's kind of it's you know it's kind of an interesting dynamic though that you know that these the, you know there are these various politicians out there who are in trouble like Abe or Netanyahu and Trump, and they're sort of all going around saying, well, what can you offer me to help me get out of trouble, and then maybe I'll offer you something to help you get out of trouble. Now, of course, Trump didn't help Abe much, but Netanyahu, who is also equally in trouble, is going to sort of tee up this whole embassy thing and Trump's going to tee up the embassy thing and they're both going to give each other a big win. But Sam, do you think it's likely to make any difference? I mean, we're getting a lot of stories right yeah. now. The worm is turning for Trump, you know, that the Michael Cohen thing, the, the other Mueller stuff, et cetera. And that, you know, um, we, we the arc has begun its sort of downward trajectory. The crazy thing is one would think so, right? I mean, any one of these things under any other presidency you'd think would start to have an impact on his approval ratings. I don't think we're seeing it yet, whether it's porn stars or mishandled policy. His base seems to be sticking with him. And we haven't talked about the elephant in the room, and that's, you know, Jim Comey. This book that came out, and we, we can dive into it, did, did have a political impact in that I do think that it galvanized Trump's base quite a bit. And so I think it's more the domestic issues that are going to either make or break Donald Trump rather than the foreign policy ones. I don't think that his core voters are paying as much attention to North Korea or Israel or something like that. Well, they don't seem to pay attention to anything. I mean, you know, I mean. Well, but I think they do. And Sam put her finger on it that they it's about it's about personality and having sort of a mascot and a champion, not about policy. You know, so they don't care about policy, but they don't like seeing their guy get beat up on. Thus, you have the seeming paradox that at precisely the moment that, you know, two thirds of America saying Trump is finished. He, how can he survive? There's just even more evidence of, of misconduct uh, and arguably criminal activity on his part and scandal that that's precisely the moment that his his base solidifies because they think he's being picked on by those, you know, soy latte drinking whoever's from the big cities and we're not going to take it. 
Ed, do you drink soy lattes? I've never drunk a soy latte They're in my delicious. Life. No, they're, they're gross. They actually are oh, gross. I, I got one by accident once. Ick. I used to like frappuccinos, but discovered there's like a thousand calories in each cup, so I gave those up. Uh, they're not. They're not on your diet. They're called. Uh, we refer to them as my shakes. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, I, I, I think um, the Comey. I mean, I'd agree with Rosa and Sam. The Comey. The, the Comey book. Um, you know, this is a sort of truth-telling Boy Scout, um, full of his own rectitude. Um, who Trump, you know, manages to tee off to great advantage with his base. I mean, it, it's, it is quite remarkable knowing what we know and knowing uh, more each day um, that, uh, that the approval ratings Trump has with the Republican Party are, are, are going up. Um, they're not going down. So, uh, and, and the racial composition um, of each party just gets more and more distinct. So what I worry about um, is nothing new, but it gets more pressing as this extraordinary presidency continues. Um, it is, is a, a bid for racial polarization um, in his 2020 re-election bid. Uh, as opposed it, to his 2016 a bigger one in which there was none whatsoever a bigger one a much bigger, bigger one, one. Yeah. and one and one that finds more echo because the parties are getting more and more racialized and and that's and that's something he wouldn't hesitate to do and and clearly you know has some has some effect it got him elected once mm. yeah well it did but you know I, 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 I people constantly are citing this this opinion poll number but, you know, I think Nixon had nearly 25 percent, you know, positive approval rating right when he resigned. I mean, there's always some chunk of people who are supportive of the president uh, because they don't know or because of reflexive loyalty or something. And Trump's only, I, you know, depending on the poll, 10, 15 points above that. Um, does it really make a difference? I mean, you know, in the, in the legal well, context. That Rosa should answer that one. Yes, Rosa, you should. <laughs> I'm sorry. Say that again, David. I was just saying, you know, that, you know, we talk all about this stuff as though the opinion polls had some kind of consequences for the legal. Oh, process. right. Well, to some extent they do, unfortunately. Right. Because the the impeachment, for instance, is a political remedy. It's not fundamentally a form of legal process. And whether uh, Congress, whether we get a Congress that is inclined to start impeachment proceedings very much depends on opinion polls. And to some extent, you know, even the, the federal legal process, whether Trump feels he can get away with pardons uh, has to do with opinion polls, whether he does get away with pardons and or whether the Republican Party is punished for pardons has to do with opinion polls. It, so it's not, strictly speaking, a legal process, uh, certainly not at the federal level. All right. I'm going to get, you know, this is like a challenge because, you know, Sam is a CNN national security analyst, but she was also there in the NSC. She knows the NSC super well. Um, I'm going to get even wonkier. Sam, Bolden has like gotten rid of three <laughs> or four or five of the people at the NSC and hasn't replaced them. He I mean, has. He increasingly has. home alone. And, you know, this only emphasize, you know, to me, it only says Trump doesn't give a shit about this stuff. And he sort of wants to have Bolton there because he knows he needs a national security advisor and he thinks he'll give good, 
you know, soundbite when the time comes to do that. But I mean, do you, do you see any sort of real damage being done by this, given that Trump doesn't actually listen to any of this stuff anyway? Well, that's a key point. I mean, how much is Trump actually listening to the National Security Council recommendations? He obviously didn't listen to them on Russia sanctions, and we saw how that went Sunday and Monday. But I think there's two different things here. One is John Bolton should have people on the National Security Council that he trusts and that he feels confident can do their jobs. So I, I, I don't have a problem with I, him. I really hate to imagine who those people are. You, you, you and me both. You and me both, because he espouses uh, policy views that keep me up at night, to be honest. But just kind of factually speaking, the National Security Advisor should have a team that he trusts and that he feels confident can do their jobs. But the problem is that he's doing this in such a haphazard way. I mean, he, this guy Bossert was kicked out with no warning like the day after he was taught, we rolled out this border wall policy. So it's like you roll out a policy, you fire the person that's supposed to be implementing it. And we're all left scratching our heads, kind of wondering who's physically staffing any of this stuff. And the other problem is I don't think they can find anyone to go in and actually work as a director or as a senior director based upon the fact, and I know this from friends that they've talked to, everyone's really worried about legal bills. So it's they're kicking people out. I don't think that they can find people to come in. And we're trying to get a North Korea meeting done. We're ostensibly trying to have a Russia policy, which isn't working. And I, I think there's a lot of empty chairs in that uh, EEOB building. Well, it's kind of amazing, right? There's, you know, there's stuff in Israel, there's stuff in Syria, there's stuff in North Korea, there's stuff with China, there's stuff going on everywhere. You may not have a secretary of state confirmed. You may, you may not. You may not have the CIA director confirmed. I think she's in even deeper trouble um, than than Pompeo is. You don't have much of a staff at the, the NSC. Um, I, I don't think the U.S. has ever mid-presidency been, you know, except for maybe when the NSC collapsed in the middle of the Reagan administration, um, been so you know, adrift. And even then you had a serious secretary of defense and a serious secretary of state to make up for it. Um, Mattis is busy sort of pushing back behind the scenes and there's nobody else home. I mean, Rosa, this, well, it's, we're our, go, go, our Ed, somebody. This is, well, well, I, th I was just gonna, I was gonna chime in facetiously that uh, at least he's got his Chief of Staff Sean Hannity trying to keep the trains running on time. Uh, the uh, idea that we're going to see Bolton, uh, even if we don't like the kinds of people Bolton would um, select, Bolton staff up the National Security Council um, uh, uh, and have have a, a, a properly functioning um, old executive office building is, I think, you know, Probably, probably quite slim possibility of that. I mean, Trump's um, made it very clear again and again, most recently with Mike, Spen uh, Mike Pence's part-time national security advisor, that anybody who has ever criticized him um, it, it, or signed one of the letters um, is taboo. And uh, that rules out even the kinds of people Bolton would want to select. So we're not going to see a staffed-up administration. And Pompeo's promise to, un, to be the untillison in that respect is, is stymied from the start. The, the, the pool of people available um, is very slim. And as Sam points out, most of them fear the legal bills. 
Well, and and I also think that we are seeing some dismaying signs that, as we have all feared would happen, uh, that Mattis's influence is diminishing. Um, Bolton, obviously, is, is he, Mattis is clearly not a fan of Bolton. He made that very clear, which in turn makes Bolton not a fan of Mattis. Uh, and the uh, the news coming out of the Pentagon in connection with the Syria strike, for instance, uh, made it pretty clear that Mattis was pushing pretty hard for let's not do this unless we have some kind of coherent longer term strategy. Strategy. I, I doubt that he thinks he got that. And more specifically, that Mattis was pushing very hard for the administration to seek congressional authorization before striking, and he lost that battle. Uh, and again, you know, is that the influence of Bolton? Is that simply that Trump has lost interest in in trying to make Mattis happy? Um, but that doesn't bode particularly well, whatever it is. Well, so let me turn this subject to another story, because we can't really get through even a podcast uh, these days without, you know, some some legal shenanigans that have to do with Russia. And there have been so much this week. And I encourage people, you know, go read some of these stories in TPM or some of these other places about Michael Cohn's family ties to Russians or Mitch McConnell's ties to Russian or Ukrainian donors and stuff. It's just mind boggling. But, you know, today a story broke the day we're recording this Friday the, the, or uh, Thursday that that um, that was kind of interesting in in that the president's lawyer, I guess, on behalf of the president, dropped lawsuits against BuzzFeed and Fusion Media um, that were libel suits about the the steel dossier. Um, now, let, let me turn to you, Rosa, and then I'll go to you, Sam, on this. But let me turn to you, Rosa. Why do you think he would drop those lawsuits? Because they weren't going to go anywhere. Yeah, they weren't. <laughs> but 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 also because if the and, lawsuits- and, and because they potentially risk having even more damaging information come out during the during the discovery process and so forth. Right. That's what I was getting at, was that there is this sort of discovery trap that happens when you go beyond the legal threat and you actually get to the lawsuit. And the more we hear about the Steele dossier, Sam, the more it sounds like it was right about, you know, almost everything, right? Yeah, I mean, the do- different parts of the dossier are definitely being corroborated by different stories. But I think you know the broader point on all these lawsuits and Michael Cohen and that sort of thing is Michael Cohen is just a really shady guy. And the president surrounded himself with certainly not the A team, not the B team, not even the C team of lawyers, advisors. This is kind of like the letter W team, whatever, trying yeah, to figure like, out what I the right like letter there is aren't here. Enough letters in the alphabet. I mean, this was not top-notch legal counsel. I mean, everyone's making the comparison to Ray Donovan. I don't know how Ray Donovan or Leah Schreiber feels about that. I actually love that show. But this was, you know, th- <laughs> this was not, this was not great legal counsel in the same way he didn't have really serious advisors working with him. So I, I can't I can't keep track of all the legal stuff. My twin sister's a lawyer. I'm not. But every time I hear all of this, I do, like you, David, say, oh, wow, that does corroborate parts of the dossier. It's a good thing that Mueller is independently looking into all of these threads. I know Republicans uh, in Congress have said that the dossier, you know, is the basis for FISA warrants and all that. Well, guess what? Mueller has other evidence, which is why we're seeing the process move along. But this Michael Cullen guy just was not the kind of guy I'd want as my lawyer, at least, even though Sean Hannity may or may not have wanted him as his lawyer. 
But I mean, it's like so awful. There was a story in the Jewish Daily Forward about how, you know, Michael Cohen's like uncle or somebody um, owned shares in the building where the or or the club where the Russian mafia met in Brooklyn. I mean, everybody he deals with is is sleazy and mob tied. It's it's no wonder that there are you know, people like the president's lawyer, Jay Goldberg, who worry that the charges that can be brought against Cohen would be so big that he might make the president flip. And it's kind of interesting, Ed, that when people defend the president or in that, or you know, Scaramucci brought it, defended him, he said, well, you know, I don't think Michael Cohen will flip. Oddly enough, he didn't say, I don't think the president's guilty of anything. You know, it was kind of it's we're 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 like even past that at this point. Uh, we we are. Um, I mean, I'm not sure how reliable a spokesman the Mooch is for the president. Uh, if there's one communications director who'd be better than Scaramucci, it's probably Trump himself. Uh, the activity that's happening on the didn't, hill. Didn't, didn't you spend uh, that, some time? With, didn't you spend some time with Scaramucci? I did. I had a wildly, hilariously entertaining lunch with the FT, which is this uh, weekly interview we do with with somebody in a restaurant of their choice. And the Mooch chose his own restaurant, the Hunt and Fish Club. Can you interview me? I want to go to a restaurant of my choice, courtesy uh, of the FT. (laughs) Indeed. And and we (laughs) would pay. He He kept saying, can you believe it? This guy's paying it's my joint this guy's paying uh, <laughs> but uh, the uh, the activity on the hill um in terms of softening up the ground for trump to fire rod rosenstein you know it is pretty significant we, we are we are you know getting uh, threats to hold rosenstein in contempt of congress for failing to um, hand over DOJ documents about the origins of the surveillance, um, the FISA um, ruling on on Carter Page and so forth. That's being uh, escalated, you know, on the Hill and then echoed by the the likes of Sean Hannity. Uh, So the the Rosenstein... um, The Rosenstein story is, I think, going to just get more intense um, in the coming days. All right. I want to finish with one last thing that I just felt needed to be addressed here. Um, and I want to give you, uh, Sam and you, Rosa, a shot at it. You can talk about anything else you want here. But of, of all the disgusting things that have happened this week, and there have been a lot because Michael Cohn is disgusting and Trump's pretty disgusting and what's going on with various lawsuits is disgusting. And by the way, the administration is continuing to do disgusting things like you know, pushing back on Obama era regulations that make it, you know, illegal to discriminate against minorities and car loans and things. I mean, there's all sorts of horrible stuff going on. But the lowest of the low, and you said the alphabet didn't have enough letters for this. I don't think that, you know, numbers theory has enough numbers um, for it. But the lowest of the low is Roger Stone, who the night of the death of Barbara Bush started taking shots at her um, and saying a bunch of really awful things about her, to which Steve Schmidt, the, one of the sane Republicans, you know, offered to beat him up, which I thought was appropriate. And I just thought, have we ever been at a moment that is this revolting? And the people around the president aren't just not the best people. They're actually the worst people, aren't they? Uh, yep, I would think that's a fair characterization. Um, I will just note 
in the annals of uh, hypocrisy uh, uh, that a university of, I think it was California, I forget which branch, uh, a professor of creative writing who posted a tweet saying that Barbara Bush was a racist um, appears to be in the process of being disciplined for saying that, whereas Roger Stone, <laughs> uh, I, I don't think that there will be any consequence. I mean, that's the trend in the people close to Trump is that they say whatever disgusting things they want and there's never any consequence. So nothing bad will happen to Roger Stone for calling Barbara Bush, Bush a nasty drunk and worse. Um, uh, nothing will happen at all, but that's because uh, that's the kind of administration and that's the kind of president this is and that's who he that's who he's close to. Do you want to add anything to that there, Sam? I agree 100% with what Rosa said. That's right. And you know what? You know what? The, the listeners of Deep State Radio, I am sure, agree 100% with what Rosa said. And whatever happens to Roger Stone out there and the rest of the world, this is the sanest group of people that there are with the best judgment. Uh, and I think they are, uh, <laughs> well, you have to you have to agree. I mean, all evidence. Absolutely. All evidence suggests that they're the same as the best judgment. And um, I, I am sure that they will line up right behind you. Anyway, um, it's late here at night in China. Um, uh, but uh, I'm very glad that you guys could join. And next week, uh, we'll do one more from China on Monday. And then I'll be back in the middle of the week. And then we'll do another one actually from Washington, D.C., in our, in our nation's capital. And I will look forward to being back because it's been a long trip. Um, but uh, it, it what, it's, what are you doing in China, David? Um, well, I am working on a project um, about trying to create a, a different kind of dialogue between rising leaders in China and rising leaders in the United States on next generation issues like uh, tech issues like AI or 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 uh, blockchain or or um, big data or other kinds of issues like that because I think we both countries sh share a problem which is our leaderships are not literate in the the subject matter that's really going to drive and define future policymaking was that too long an answer that's you're talking I'm about Jared Kushner uh, yeah. That's that's all for Jared. Everything I do is for Jared. Um, in any event, I'm here. I'm here doing that, and my wife is also singing in Shenzhen and in Beijing. So, so, so I'm listening to her sing as well. Um, in any event, um, I uh, want to thank um, all of you, Rosa and Ed and Sam, and I hope you all come back real soon. And that that. Uh, I get back in one piece, I see y'all real soon. And thanks to all of you out there in Deep State Radio land. Uh, see you soon. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.